If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, Ephesians 1. So if you haven't been with us, we have slowly been making our way through Ephesians 1. Uh, so, so this morning, Lord willing, we will be verses 11 through 14. That'll, that'll be our, our focus. But we've been moving slowly because so much is packed into these first 14 verses. As, as week by week we've seen, it's, it's, it's filled with, with these truths, these, these marvelous truths. And so as we, as we finish verses 3 through 14 this week, next week, kind of a heads up, Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 1. Uh, so, so verses 15 through 23 will be our, our sermon text for next week. But as we close this first section, this, this section that, that um, is, is wrapped up in verse 14, but, but the section that runs from verse 3 to 14, we're going to see this week that just as Paul began with this section, verse 3, with an outburst of praise, this praise, this note of praise has been sustained throughout this entire section by means of, of the phrase, this, this refrain that's occurred over and over, to the praise of his glory. And so Paul, at the outset, is saying, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, and the recipients of these wide-ranging blessings of salvation, along with the Apostle Paul, have been stimulated by this recital of God's mighty acts in his Son to express gratitude and praise. And so that's why, again and again, he's saying, to the praise of his glory, God's done this for us, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And so again, this week, we're going to see this phrase, to the praise of his glory, at the end of verse 14. And we're going to see that the praise of his glory is the ultimate purpose of God's activity in this world. And, and that is, if we grasp these verses, what we ought to be compelled towards. We ought to be compelled towards an attitude of re- in response of gratitude and praise. And so in order to us, for us to respond appropriately, it, it's important for us to grasp Paul's intention here in this unit. And so quickly, let me remind you of this progression that Paul has been making in verses 3 through 10 thus far. So in, in, in this, this, this eulogy in verse 3, as it opens, this overflow of praise, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father who's blessed us in Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Then he goes to list those. So in verses 3 through 6, Paul says, The Father chose you and predestined you before the foundation of the world. That's the focus of verses 3 through 6. And then last week in verses 7 through 10, we saw the activity of the Son, Jesus, who, who redeems and purchases the forgiveness of sins for those people. And this week we're going to see the, the blessings in verse 11 through 14. It's the work of the Spirit among God's people. Specifically, we're going to see that the Spirit is given to those who put their faith in Christ. And so as he, he works with this whole section, we see that those whom the Father chose are those whom the Son redeems and are the same ones that the Spirit seals as a guarantee. There's remarkable unity through this passage. The triune God is is all active. And so the big picture of verses 3 through 14 is that those who are in Christ are those that are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. And those in Christ are in fact and forever will be God's possession, His inheritance, And we are such by the unique activity of our triune God. We're his people. And so it should just cause us to pause and say, to the praise of his glory, praise God that the Father chose me, that the Son redeemed me, and the Spirit has sealed me. Because he's done all this, as Paul will say, to the praise of his glory. And so my hope as we we leave here, at the end of this time, is that we would leave here more amazed by the riches of God's grace that have been lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. That's my hope. Let's read. So we're going to read. I'm going to read the whole, whole section. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 
Um, and so if that's helpful, that's what we'll be reading from. But, but follow along as I read beginning in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you too were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inherit, inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let, let's pray before we begin. Lord, this is your inspired word, written by Paul, breathed out by you. And so we ask that as, as we spend our time looking at this, thinking about these verses, Lord, by your spirit, would you open our eyes? Would you, would you open the eyes of our heart that we might see you see your glory, your majesty, see your love that's been shown to us in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that, that, that anyone here who is not in Christ, who has not put their faith in Jesus, I pray that this would be the time, that this would be the day that, that their eyes are open and they see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and that they respond in faith and repentance. Only you can do this, Lord, so we ask that you would. In Christ's name, amen. So the outline, we have, we have three sections here. We're going to work through the, the three sections, and so, so here's the outline at the beginning. So, so section one, we're going to see verse 11. We're going to see predestined to be God's possession. Second, we'll see one gospel, one people. So that's going to be verse 12, and then the beginning of verse 13. And then third, we'll see the seal and the guarantee, which is the second part of verse 13 into verse 14. So, so that's where we're headed. So let's begin there with, with, with section one, verse 11, predestined to be God's Possession. So, so as I just read, notice verse 11. Look down at, at your Bibles there, verse 11. Paul writes, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul, in Christ, he continues, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, now pause there. We're going to hold that. We're going to say more about that in a minute. But this possession that Paul's talking about, it's possessed because it was predestined, Paul says. It says it was predestined, and, and not just predestined, Paul doesn't leave that verb there, they're unexplained. It was predestined, Paul says, why? According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that's how Paul begins. You, you have an inheritance, you've obtained it, because it's been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now it should be recognized as you, as you read that phrase, we've seen this language before. In fact, up in verse 5 that we just read, Paul in verse 5 says that we are predestined to be adopted to himself as sons according to the purpose of his will. And so here, again, the, the same theme, the same idea. 
Paul, in just a matter of a few verses, is making a point. He's emphasizing this specific truth, namely that God had a plan. And that plan began before the foundation of the world, and that plan involved redemption through Jesus. This plan, it, 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 was, it was central, it was centralized, that the main idea was Jesus. He was the, the, the main idea, the central part of the plan. But the plan of God, according to Paul, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, is a plan that involved choosing and predestining individuals to salvation. That's what Paul says, God chose us according to the purpose of his will. And here in verse 11, God predestined an inheritance which can't be separated from Paul and his audience who are individuals. And what Paul is specifically saying here, similarly to verse 5, is that God's eternal plan involved choosing certain people to be a part of his family, which, which would make up his possession, his people, and inheritance. God's eternal plan involved individuals, and these individuals, the one that Paul is writing to, the Christians he's writing to who are to rejoice, and he's, he's writing to them because God's plan determined that they would be part of God's family, that they would be God's possession. And Paul's writing because he's saying that that should be reason to rejoice. You belong to God. And so that, that was Paul's point. Clearly in, up in verse 5 when Paul says that we were predestined to be adopted. He says adopted to himself. And so, so the purpose is there is, is for God to have those for himself, that's, that's, that's the language used there, it's family language. But here in verse 11, that point isn't as clear. So look there at verse 11. Now this is going to vary depending on what translation of, of Scripture you have in front of you. But at least with the ESV's translation, it's not clear that Paul's talking about, about God's possession. Because verse 11 in ESV is translated, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Which conveys the idea, so, so if you read it, take it as that, it conveys the idea that we are the ones who have obtained an inheritance. Do you see that? I mean, that's pretty straightforward. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. That's how it's translated. Now, your translation, if it's not the English Standard Version, it may say something different. So if you have the NIV, it'll simply say, in him we are chosen. And you say, well, wait a minute, inheritance isn't even, even in my translation. Well, the issue here, and it's complicated, and, and, and commentators and, and, and scholars will all, all kind of disagree on, on what exactly, how exactly this should be understood. But the issue is this Greek verb that's used, and so this is the only place that it's used in the entire New Testament. So nowhere else, only here in this verse is this Greek verb used with this tense. And this verb, right, obtaining the, the inheritance or obtaining an inheritance it can mean either to obtain a lot, so, so to obtain something, or it can simply mean to a lot or a sign or a point. So it can either mean to obtain or simply to a sign or a lot. And so here, th th this occurs in the passive tense. And so it can mean we have obtained an inheritance, which is exactly what the ESV, if you have the King James and other translations, it is we have received something. But the passive voice, which is what this verb, the tense that it's in, normally would be translated, have been allotted, or have been assigned, or have been appointed. So do you see the difference? It's either we, we have obtained it, or we've been appointed or assigned. And so understanding it this second way means not that we've obtained an inheritance, but instead that we've been allotted or assigned or appointed as an inheritance. 
And so if you have the NIV, you'll notice the translators make that decision. They come down on that side and say the word inheritance doesn't need to be used here because it's simply saying that, that we were chosen, that, that, that God is the one who has received the inheritance. And so the question is, if you're lost, tune back in. The question is, should this passage be read as we have obtained an inheritance for ourselves? Or should the passage read, we have been made an inheritance for God? Do you see those two options? Depending on how we translate that one verb, We'll, we'll, we'll dictate what the question we ask is. Have, have we obtained an inheritance for ourselves from God, or have we been, a, been made an inheritance for God? In other words, is the passage talking about an inheritance that God has given us, or is the passage talking about us as God's inheritance, the thing which he has chosen for his own? Now, at the end of the day, right, both are true. We have an inheritance from God, and we are God's inheritance. So both are true, But here in this context, it seems best to understand Paul is saying that in Christ we were claimed by God as his portion, as his inheritance. Or as one commentator puts it, it it is in Christ that we were made to be God's heritage, a heritage for him. And so I'm just going to tell you briefly why I think that's the best meaning here. And I think it's important. I wouldn't go through all this if I didn't think that this was important for us to grasp. So here's why I think that, that that, that we are God's inheritance. So notice up, I already mentioned verse 5. Right? So, so Paul's language that, that God the Father predestined to be adopted to himself, this is a possession. So God's plan involved particular individuals being predestined to be adopted to himself. Right? So that's God's possession. To be God's inheritance, God's part of God's family. So, so that, that the second meaning would fit with, with that same idea. Second, if, you, if we skip forward and look down at verse 18, which we'll get to next week, but for now simply notice in, in verse 18 of chapter 1, that, that there's riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And so again, the, 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 the emphasis is on God's glorious inheritance in his saints. So again, God is the one who has a possession, who has an allotment, a heritage. So that's, that's a, a second reason. Third, Peter would make this exact same statement in 1 Peter chapter 2. So, so in this, this context, Peter is talking to, to these Christians and he's saying in verse 9 that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the last descriptor, a people for his own possession. So that's the idea that, that God's people are, are, are purchased and, and, and organized as his own possession, right? which would go in line with, with the second way that I'm arguing that this should be understood. And then lastly, and I'd say most convincingly, this is the exact idea that shaped the Israelites and so in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in Moses' song, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, and so verses 8 and 9, listen, listen to how Moses describes what God has done. He says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Okay, so, so that's the idea, is the Lord is giving out inheritances to all, all the, 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 the nations, Verse 9, but the Lord's portion, so we're not talking about the Lord giving portions, now we're talking about the Lord's portion. He says, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. And so again, you see that, that the Lord has a, a, a lot, a portion that is his people, which would go right along with this understanding of verse 11. In him, right, he has, he has obtained an inheritance, the idea is not foreign to Scripture. God has a people who are His, His prized possession, His inheritance. And so if we step, step back, God's eternal plan for the created universe was aimed at Him having people for Himself. 
with him having, possessing them, and with them possessing and having him. I mean, just stop and think about that. If you're here this morning and, and you are in Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you're trusting in him, do you know what's true of you? You belong to God. You're part of a family. I mean, a fam- some of you ha- have, have had no family, or at least no, no family worth experiencing. And, 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 and this says that in Christ you have family. And this family has a tree that is far more precious than anything you could ever find on Ancestry.com. Right? This is a, a family that you're part of because God decided, I want you to be part of my family. I mean, the God of the universe, to, to anyone who's in Christ, that's, that's your reality. You're God's property. You belong. You're on the inside. You're accepted. You're treasured. Maybe in your neighborhood, maybe, maybe you feel like, I'm, I'm not in the in crowd. Maybe at work, oh, I, I wish people liked me like them. Right? We feel that. We feel alienation as humans and in groups. There's always an in and out. If, if you don't experience now, think back to high school or middle school. You, you, feel, you feel out. I'm not part. Maybe you're here and you're a middle schooler. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're accepted regardless of what anyone else says or believes about you. You're God's property. All this is yours according to him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is just good news. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. But but, but this leads us to our second point, verses 12 and 13. Secondly, we see that that Paul Paul talks about or explains or clarifies that there's one gospel and one people. So as Paul transitions from verse 11 into verse 12 and 13, there's a difficult decision to make here. And so again, notice there in verse 12. In verse 12, there's, there's a we. So, so there, there's a, a we that, that's there in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So, so you have the we in verse 12. And then in verse 13, if you look there, skip ahead to verse 13, there is a, a you. In him, you also, when you heard the, the word of truth, the gospel of salvation believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, so you have the you in verse, in verse 12, and the we, or we have the we in verse 12, and the you in 13. Okay, so there's a contrast. And so the decision that we have to make is, well, who's the we and who's the you? Now, in order to understand the you and the we, right, so let's step back, right, let's understand the context, got, uh, Paul's bigger picture. Verse 11, up in verse 11, there's a we, right? So, so look there at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. So there's a we in verse 11, which is who have been the benefactors, the we that's been, been carried all the way through verse 3 through verse 11. So all Christians everywhere, we, I think that's the we, which is verse 11, the we. We have been made the Lord's inheritance. So that's the we. But then in verse 12, there's a transition to a different we. Though the word we is used again, do you notice how he, he specifies, he clarifies the we in verse 12? Look there, so that we, who's that we? Not the same we, the, this we in verse 12 is we who are the first to hope. Right? So, so when he says there's a, a, a different, he qualifies the we, which tells me he's not talking about the same we. Now, if you're not looking at your Bible, you're lost right now, and I hope you feel that way, right? Bring your Bibles and look in it. But, but so, so in 12, the we is different than the we in verse 11. And the we in verse 12 is those who were the first to hope in Christ. And so Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, 
considers himself part of the we that the, the recipients were not. Because in verse 13 he says, but you also. And so it, so it means either one of two things, which there's not much difference in, in whichever, whichever you, uh, view you take. But it's either Paul is writing from the perspective as an, of, as an apostle and those with him. So the we is the apostles. And then the you would be the Ephesians and those getting the letter. So the we, the you, there's a distinction which makes sense, and, and I'm okay with that, but I think what fits better with this context and with the New Testament would be that the we of Paul is the Jewish Christians. We, the, the Jewish Christians, were who were the first to hope, which would mean the you of the you also would be the Gentile Christians. Now, the meaning, as I mentioned, doesn't change, change drastically, but it makes so, most sense to me to think that Paul's referring to the Jews as we and the you as Gentiles, and that's the distinction, the Jew-Gentile distinction. Now, he's going to cover this at, at depth, in depth, at the end of chapter 2. So we'll get there, which is why I think one of the reasons that he introduces that here, because he's going to unpack it in chapter 2. But think about what he's just said. He's just claimed for those in Christ the very exact blessing and privilege that was reserved for, for the Jews in the Old Testament. Right? The Jewish people were God's inheritance, his possession. Now, he's just said that in him, we are all that. He just claimed for, for those in Christ the exact blessing that was limited to the Israelites. And so it's a problem for lots of Jewish Christians. It's a problem that Paul and the apostles are, are going to have to continually address as the gospel spreads. And the, the issue, the problem is this. The Jews have always had a unique and privileged position. How can these Gentile non-Jews get the same blessing? It's not fair. It's not right. And so, to ease this difficulty, one of the solutions, right, to try and make sense of this, is that the Jewish Christians were saying, hey, Gentiles, yeah, we're happy to give you all the blessings that are yours in Jesus, but it's just Jesus and Mosaic law. So, so you just got to get circumcised. You got to become truly Jewish. It's not faith in Jesus alone, right? Because the Jews are a pretty special people. If you want to be one of us, you got to at least wear our uniform, right? So, so that's how one way that they, they try and fix or address this tension here. And they say that to be part of God's people, you got to adopt these, these ritualistic laws. You got to obey Moses. And so Paul, recognizing the tendency of, of Jews to discount the Gentile Christians, He addresses the mostly Gentile audience in this way, saying, we Jews who were the first to hope in Christ, we were saved to the glory of his grace, to the praise of God's glory, but, and this is an important but, but, Paul would say to the Gentile Christians, in him you also, you also, like us, yes we, yes we first, but you also, when you heard the word of the truth, word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who, by the way, verse 14, is the seal of our inheritance. And so in verse 14, the hour is once again everyone. And I think that's Paul's point, saying, we have an inheritance. Yeah, we Jews first, but you also, our inheritance, Jew and Gentile, together, one inheritance, one people. I think that's his point here. And so by, the, by phrasing verses 12 and 13 in this way, Paul is implying that, that the Jews and the Gentiles are both in Christ and are both now one people. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. In Christ, there's one people of God. This goes for the Jew as much as the Gentile. 
It's in Jesus now. There's one new man, as we'll see in chapter 2. And so Paul, notice when he says that, that when we Jews that were the first to hope in Christ, right, so, so he's not saying just by nature of our Jewishness, we get all of this. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul rec- we ought to recognize that Paul means and understands that, that the Jews went through the same thing that he lays out in the Gentile process in verse 13. All we have to do is go back to Acts chapter 2. Do you remember what happened in Acts 2? You don't have to go there. You can read this later. But in Acts 2, Jesus has been crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended. The scared apostles go into the, the upper room <clears throat> in Jerusalem. They wait. The Lord sends the Spirit. And then they're emboldened to, to go preach Christ crucified to all those who are gathered. And so Peter, in Acts chapter 2, preaches this sermon to all the Jews in Jerusalem. So lots of Jews have come to Jerusalem for a festival. And it says that there's Jews in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, and they gather in Jerusalem. They're from the dispersion, so they've all gone back, but they all come home for, for homecoming. And so it's that time that the Spirit comes, and then Peter preaches this sermon, the Pentecost sermon. And he proclaims the death and resurrection of Jesus. And at the end of the sermon... After he finishes, verse 37 of Acts chapter 2 says this. Now remember, these are all Jews that have gathered. And verse 37 37 of Acts 2 says, Now when they heard this, meaning Peter's sermon, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive... What? The gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so this event would have been well known to the early Christians. The Jews heard the gospel They responded, they believed, they put their faith in the one that they had just crucified, and then they received the Holy Spirit. And this is the process. The Jews get the Spirit first in Jerusalem. And then the the, the book of Acts uh, records the progress of the gospel to the Jews, then the kind of the the half-Jews, and then finally the Gentiles. And remarkably, in Acts chapter 10 is the first time that that it's an only Gentile audience that receives the Spirit. And so if if this afternoon you read Acts 2, go ahead and read Acts chapter 10 while you're there, because Acts chapter 10 records the Pentecost among the Gentiles. And so the Apostle Peter, again, has this encounter with a man named Cornelius and his family. Read about in Acts 10. But as Peter is preaching the good news to Cornelius, remember these are Gentiles, these are non-Jews, non-Jews, as Peter's preaching the gospel to Cornelius and those gathered in his house, this is Acts 10.44, it says, The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And listen, listen to this. And the believers from among the circumcised, which is the Jews, Peter and his Jewish friends, who had come with Peter, were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They say, What? Acts chapter 2 is happening in Acts chapter 10. The same spirit, the same gospel, the same process that our Jews received is now happening to non-Jewish people. Then Peter declared, verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing this people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? 
And then he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit was given in Acts chapter 10 even to the Gentiles, and it was remarkable. And you would think that this experience and others like it would solve the problem, but it didn't. There were still Jewish Christians who said, no, 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 that's not good enough. They still got to submit to Moses. And so in Acts chapter 15, so if you read Acts 2 and then go to Acts 10, well, then go ahead and go to Acts 15 while you're there. And in Acts 15 is what is called the the Jerusalem Council, where there's some men, some Judaizers who are going around saying, if you want to be saved, if you want to be saved, they're saying, you want to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, if you want to be saved, you've got to submit to Moses. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law. And then that, that gets Peter, and that gets Paul, and that gets all the apostles. They, they, we're going to Jerusalem because we're going we're gonna to nip this in the bud because this is anti-gospel. And so Peter stands up, and his experience in Acts 10 is what is used to say, why would we make them do anything else? They received the Spirit upon faith, the same Spirit that we received when we heard the gospel. They received, they heard, and they received the gospel. And so this was the issue for the early church at the times of the apostles. I mean, read, read Galatians. This is the issue. And so Paul here in the letter to the Ephesians is, is putting to rest right here in chapter 1 of the Ephesians. He's addressing this issue. Yes, we Jews heard. Yes, we Jews believed. We were the first to hope in Jesus. But there's no distinction because you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Notice he doesn't say when you heard the gospel of the Jewish salvation. You were included in the Jewish salvation. No, he says, when you heard the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed. You were, you were given and re- you received the promised Holy Spirit when you believed, when you heard and believed. In other words, Paul is saying this, these spiritual blessings that have come to you through Christ have come directly to you through Christ. Didn't come through a Jewish uh, detour. They come directly from Jesus to you through his gospel. It's not as if, Gentile believers, you've received your salvation secondhand. It's not as if you received a second-class salvation. Gentiles, you are not second-class is what Paul is saying. You heard, you believed, you were sealed. One gospel, one response, one sealing spirit. The gospel to the Jews was the gospel to the Gentiles. One gospel creating one people. And we should note it's the gospel to the Americans, to the Chinese, to Nigerians, to the Southern Thai, which, by the way, one of our our missionary families just got a request this week to to pray specifically for two Thai men. So, So Jeremy has been meeting with these two Thai men. And, and they're being introduced to the gospel for the past two months, weekly. And he says some weeks they're, they're really open to it, but some weeks they, they, they don't want anything to do with it. They're, they're hardened. So we ought to pray that the one gospel is for those two Thai men. We ought to pray for this gospel to be received by them, for it to come on them in power, for, for the spirit of promise to be, to be given to them. It's the gospel for all nations. But this gospel, it's not only the gospel for every nation. This gospel is the only gospel for every person. This gospel is not not only the only gospel for every nation, but this gospel is the only gospel for every person of every nation. There's one gospel. So it's it's a gospel for whites. It's a gospel for blacks. 
It's a gospel for illegals. It's a gospel for citizens. It's a gospel for the rich. It's a gospel for the poor. It's a gospel for the well-educated. It's a gospel for the illiterate. It's a gospel for the young. It's a gospel for the old. It's a gospel for the president. It's a gospel for the speaker. It's a gospel for the armed forces. It's a gospel for the protesters. It's a gospel for the lonely, the hurting, and the broken. It's a gospel for the proud, the self-righteous, the put together. It's a gospel for you, and it's a gospel for me. One gospel, one Christ crucified, buried, and raised again. One people of God. I wonder this morning if you're here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus. Have you heard this gospel? It's good news for you. It's one gospel. You must repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. It's for you. Jesus died so that you might be forgiven, that you might put your faith and your hope and your trust in him, so you might become God's possession, part of his people. No longer Jew and Gentile, but, but one new race, those in Jesus. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would love to talk with you about it, but maybe you don't need me to talk. Maybe you know exactly what it would mean for you to put your faith in Jesus. Well, you should do that. Don't wait. Those who are in Christ, those who hear and believe, they know that they are in Christ. So if you're here and you're a Christian, you can have assurance. You can know that you're in Christ because you have received the spirit of promise, which leads us to our last point. The second part of of verse 13 into verse 14, our last point, the seal and the guarantee. Because remember, Paul's Paul's including the work of the Spirit in this. And so as Paul closes out this section, he he culminates the work. Now notice, as I've mentioned, and I hope you get this, whenever you you read back over Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, I hope you get the Trinitarian shape. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. But here... Those that the Father chooses and the Son redeems and those that the Spirit seals, that word seal or seals at the end of verse 13, it means that the Spirit is, is given as a mark of ownership, right? So, so, so marks, seals, or declarations, this is mine. So if I send this letter, I have a seal that I mark it. And I say, this comes from me. There's authority, there's possession, there's ownership. And Paul is saying that the Spirit is the seal or the mark. It's the authentication. The Lord is saying, he, she is mine. I put my spirit as that guarantee. God is saying here, those people who belong to me are marked with my seal. Paul is saying that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is firm indication that the person is possessed by God, belonging to him. The spirit guarantees that, seals that. But notice as as he goes to verse 14, Paul closes by identifying the promised spirit, or the spirit of promise, not only as the seal, but also as the one who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So notice there, verse, verse 14, the spirit is a who, right? He is a who. He's a person. Don't miss that. Don't call the Holy Spirit an it. That, that is not a personal pronoun. The Holy Spirit is a he. Three persons. Paul says, he, who, he, the Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance. He switches back, as I mentioned, to our inheritance. 
Everyone who's in Christ has a common inheritance. There's not a Jewish inheritance and a Gentile. There's a common inheritance. And that inheritance, Paul says, is guaranteed by the Spirit. Now, if you have the King James Version, or even I think the New King James, says the Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. The word earnest or or guarantee, the the word signifies a, a down payment, a pledge. So Paul is saying here, the Spirit has been given as a down payment or a guarantee or a pledge. And that down payment or that guarantee or that pledge, by its very nature, it's temporary. Do you see the down payment means the rest is coming, or at least hopefully, right? If you're a mortgage company or you buy a house, you hope the rest is coming. It's a down payment. But, but the down payment is temporary. It points to something that's coming in full. There's more on the way. A pledge means there's, there's more coming. And so verse 14, notice there at verse 14, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until, until, until we acquire possession of it. Which brings us all the way back up to verse 5 in our discussion about the inheritance. In verse 11, the inheritance. Because here the ESV maintains a translation that it, that it used there up in verse 11 by saying the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Until it's, it's something we're acquiring. But, but like I said in verse 11, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's the intention here. If you have the NIV, I think it's a, a more accurate or a better rendering of this idea. The NIV says the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And so, so, so this end point is, is when God redeems his possession. It's not until we redeem our inheritance, but, but we are God's inheritance, and, and we have the Spirit until he redeems his possession. Or the, the, the King James says the Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So they just translate the words. They don't imply who is doing the possessing and all that. They just say that is the guarantee of the inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, which if, if you're tracking with me on verse 11, that's us. And so the Spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance until God purchases, completely possesses his people. The point is that we have the Spirit as the guarantee that we are God's people and that we will have him until God completely redeems us, and we won't need the guarantee because we will be them, with Him, fully, completely. Until God's people are fully and completely possessed by Him, they have a guarantee that they are possessed completely and fully by Him, by the presence of this promised Spirit, which, as I said, this is remarkably assuring for the believer. This plan, which began before the foundation of the world, that the Father would predestine us to be adopted to Himself, then he would predestine us to be his inheritance, his possession, and then not to leave us questioning whether we really were his or not, not questioning, okay, whose possession are we? So as not to leave us questioning, he would mark us and seal us by his spirit. And how kind of the Lord to give us his spirit who is a pledge given to us by God to assure us that the glory of the life to come which is promised the hope of Christ that's promised in the gospel is a well-founded hope, a reality, not an illusion. Do you wonder, is this whole Christian thing for real? Am I foolish for hoping that there's a heaven and an inheritance and there's a future with God? Am I silly? The Spirit is given to you to ensure you it's not silly. It's not silly. If you're, if you're wrestling with that, go to your word and pray, Spirit, give me eyes to see. 
The Spirit is for the purpose of assuring you that you are God's now and forever will be. And so whether Jew or Gentile, those in Christ are all assigned to the same ultimate destination with God forever. And all of this, all of this, as Paul has made clear throughout this whole section, which he reiterates again, the last phrase, look there at the last phrase of verse 14, is to the praise of his glory. What a great salvation we have in Christ. What a great salvation we have in Christ. What a great prospect and hope we have for our future in Christ. Let us, let us sing and live and pray and move to the praise of His glory because of what He's done for us in Christ. Would you pray with me as we close?